One of the hardest things that happens to us as believers is when we face a difficult trial or a difficult circumstance is to get God's perspective on what is God doing in us? What is God doing in this circumstance? How is God leveraging this to, to help us? And in what we're gonna look at in this series in the book of First Peter is we're gonna look at how do we get God's perspective on the trials that we face? How do we continue to stay strong, to stay leaned in to serving Jesus? Because the enemy of our souls wants trials to push us away from our faith in Christ, whereas God wants to use trials to strengthen our faith. And so we hope you enjoy this message today. And if you haven't yet, download our app. Go to nextsteps.me for any information you need. And also you can visit our website at thrivechurch.me. Now on to today's message. Good morning, Thrive Church. How are we doing this morning? Good deal. Good to have you guys with us today. Um, just real quick, too, we have a group from Kansas uh, this week. They're taking their spring break. Woo, they, 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 they jumped the gun already. Taking their spring break. And they're serving uh, the churches in this community. They're serving different organizations in this community. They're helping Thrive Church out this week. And we just want to say thank you guys for doing this and taking your spring break to serve uh, God's kingdom. Thank you. It's a big sacrifice. When I was their age doing spring break, um, it was a little different for me. So um, it's awesome to have an example like that in what you guys are doing. Well, if you're new with us today, uh, you've joined us in week two of a series in the letter of 1 Peter. And so we love to, throughout the year, just take time strategically to journey through a book of the Bible or do a study in the book of the Bible. And here's my hope for you, is that you'll not just come listen to me, but maybe you'll do your own study in 1 Peter. Maybe you'll read it, and hopefully I can answer questions or clarify things for you as you journey through Scripture. Today we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, something happened to me when I was uh, um, young. I was in, in a band, and I toured in a, in a Christian punk rock band. And so we got to tour the country and had a lot of good memories. I've shared those memories with you. But one thing that happened that really hurt was I had my best friend and my bass player um, come to me one day, and he was on, on this journey of leaving his faith. And so he came to me and talked to me. We had a lot of good discussions. He majored in philosophy. And so, you know, we talk a lot about philosophy. I really love it. I love to talk, I talk about those things. And he's not like my enemy. He's my friend. And so we're talking. But here's what he said to me. He said, Kevin, here's the deal. He said, in Christianity, you claim that when you come to know Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, which you claim is the God of the universe lives inside of you once you come to know Christ. I'm like, yeah, that's true. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Yeah. He says, Here's my problem. There are so many people in this church we attend that their life is no different than mine. It's actually worse. Their morality, everything they do is worse than me. And they claim to have the God of the universe living in them. He says, I just don't buy it. He said, because, and he named out some people, which I will not use names uh, for sake of recording. He said, because of these people here, I just, I choose not to believe it. Because why can't the God of the universe change them? If they claim he lives inside of them. And it broke my heart, but I'm going to be honest with you. It awakened me too to how people who are on the other side of faith view us. It opened me up to why people leave the faith sometimes, why people walk away. Now, whether it was genuine faith or imposter faith from last week, I'm, uh, you know, that's not for me to answer. But it broke my heart. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter actually addresses this thing here. He addresses this type of faith that what we should have to do the opposite. 
And if you have your copy again, we'll be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Peter wrote this letter to believers that were experiencing extreme persecution in the first century. Matter of fact, the reign of Nero was coming in. If you study history and believe the Bible's fairy tales, just study history. Nero was real. All that was real. Um, and he began to really persecute Christians at a high level. So Peter wrote this letter to encourage these believers. And when he wrote this letter, there weren't many letters he wrote. It wasn't like you, you hit the print button and you printed out several of them and say, man, carry this to all the churches. All the churches that he was writing, as we talked about last week, they would take that one letter and they would circulate it from church to church. And he was trying to encourage them to stand up during trials and to live out their faith for the world to see. So Peter writes this letter to them to encourage them, to remind them who they are in Christ. It's one of Jesus' eyewitness followers. <laughs> and Peter... When Jesus was going to be crucified, actually denies Jesus. He cusses out a little servant girl and tells her, because she says, hey, aren't you with that guy? Like, you're from Galilee, right? Like, you have that southern accent, don't you, Peter? <laughs> Peter's like, no, I don't have the southern accent. I'm not from Galilee. I never follow that man. Blank, 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 blank. And Peter, Peter walks away, goes back to fishing. And then Peter, who denied his Lord going to the cross, after the resurrection, meets the resurrected Jesus and chooses to follow him as Lord once and for all. And then Peter, just several days later, several weeks later, is standing up to the same people who crucified Jesus, saying, all right, you crucified him? Crucified me too if you want to. That's one of the, 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 the truths of the resurrection. How could the resurrection be real? That a guy who had cursed out a little girl now is ready to die for the same guy he just denied because he saw him resurrected. And so Peter begins to lead the early church. He is the, the face of the early church, someone who denied Jesus, and now God is using him. Can I encourage you for a second that if you feel like you failed God, that you're not good enough, that you did something wrong, if God can restore Peter from that, he can restore you from anything. And so he begins to use Peter in an amazing way. And so one of the ways he uses Peter, as we talked about, he, as what they call a, like an early, one of the 12 apostles, writes this letter to encourage the churches. And so what would happen in that day and time, they would take this letter and they would read the whole letter in one sitting. The whole thing. So today what I'm going to do is read the whole letter in one sitting. No, I'm joking. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> We're going to look at, at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And let's see what Peter does to encourage these believers in the first century. And then what he does to also exhort them to live out a Christ-like life. He says this, so, after last week, talking about embracing trials and living for Christ. He says, so get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you've had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Christ follower, if, if you claim to follow Jesus, lean into Jesus. Hunger for the word of God. Hunger for intimacy with your heavenly Father. Lean into your faith so you can grow. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Now, he's going to use some Jewish language here. And what he's doing is, is he's reframing and reshaping the way that Jews and Gentiles viewed everything, including the Jewish standard of religion here. Here's what he says. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. 
He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And look what he says here. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What they viewed was the Jewish temple. They viewed that that was the activity of God. That that's where you went and offered sacrifices and you did these things. And he reshap he's reshaping all of that to them. This is eye-opening for some of them. And then he says this, which is so crazy. He says, what's, what's more, you are his holy priests. Remember the Jewish priest? And the Jewish priest had to go into the, the synagogue and the Holy of Holies and the tabernacles and all that stuff he had to do. And, and he was like the most revered person in the whole Jewish religion. He could enter the very Holy of Holies, but a regular person couldn't. And look what Peter's saying. He says, but you are holy priest. It's kind of like if I say to you, you're a pastor. You're like, oh, oh, time out, Kevin. I didn't sign up for that. I've just come to church today, right? Sitting, listening. I am no pastor. He is elevating them to understand who they are in Christ. You're a holy priest. It says this, through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, and he starts quoting what would be to us the Old Testament, but the Jewish scriptures. He says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem. This is what was said about Jesus before he ever came. Chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Then Peter says to them, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor that God has given him. That God has elevated Jesus. He is the only way to heaven. But for those who reject him. That's the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, speaking of Jesus. And he is the stone that makes people stumble. Do you know Jesus actually makes people stumble? You know why? They just can't believe that he would be the only way to heaven. God's one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever. And people can't grasp that. He becomes a stumbling block to them, that the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. And he goes back to them, but you are not like that. Watch this here. For you are a chosen people. He says, you are royal priests, a holy nation. Now, time out a holy nation, because you hear holy nation. If you've heard this scripture before, you kind of just glaze over. Maybe you've even taught this or preached this, and you glaze over. But a holy nation... See, before the central activity was just the nation of Israel. The whole, what we call Old Testament, was their journey. And now Peter writes to these Jews and these Gentiles, these non-Jews, and says, now you are a new nation, a set-apart nation of followers of Jesus. He's reframing everything they've ever been taught there. He says, God's very own possession. And I want you to understand that about you, that you're God's very own possession. That God chose you. He chose you. You say, yeah, man, I don't know. Does God, God knows everything. He knows all the dark secrets about you. And he chose you. Out hallelujah and go home and eat. The part, we could stop there and we could shout hallelujah and go home and eat some chicken. Right? Have fun at lunch. But it doesn't stop there. Here's the reason God did that. And then he goes into the, as a result he says, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you had new identity as a people, and he's speaking to Gentiles as well there because they had no identity, but now you are God's people. People, Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, you must realize this right here, guys. You are not just citizens of the United States of America or whatever country you're from. You're a citizen of heaven. Once you give your life to Christ, Christ, when he was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says, I don't understand this new spiritual birth, John 3, what's going on? Jesus said you are born from above when you're born. When you receive Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. So Peter warns them with their new citizenship. So don't get too attached to the earth. Don't get too riled about things, things of the earth. Because here's what he says here. I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And this is what I want you to look at today. This is the key to all of this. He's been speaking all of this here to really show them this one point. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Peter says he wants them to live properly among their unbelieving neighbors. See, God showed you his goodness so you can show others God's goodness. That's why he did that. And he says this word properly here. And you would think as you read that scripture, live properly among your neighbors. Live ethically right. Just be a really good person among your neighbors properly. Right? You hear proper. That's what I think, proper. But that Greek word there, this is beautiful. Beautiful. And actually, no pun intended, it's beautiful. That Greek word there, kelos, just doesn't mean like live, like just obeying good things and, and just doing the right things. Here's what that word means. To live properly among your unbelieving neighbors means to live good or beautiful. Matter of fact, when you look at the, like, the etymology of this word, the breakdown of this word in Scripture, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he didn't mean, I am the proper shepherd who just does everything right, which he did, right, technically, because he you know, made all the commands. Here's what it means. He is the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd. He reveals God's hidden attributes to the world when they saw him. Matter of fact, let's go a step further. There was a lady named Mary, not Jesus' mother, but another lady, who began to follow Jesus. And she sees Jesus walk into a house, and his feet were dirty. They wore sandals, walking on dirt roads, camel dung, all that stuff. And she takes a bottle of perfume that was worth a year's wage, right? So imagine a whole year on perfume. That's, that's crazy. Some of y'all spend spend that in shoes and handbags, lady. Don't, don't look at that. Yeah, yeah. You zap uh, that. So she, she takes this bottle of perfume and she breaks it and takes her hair and just starts wiping Jesus' feet. And, of course, Jesus is like, yeah, but that money could have been used for the poor. Everybody doesn't have an opinion about your ministry. You just keep doing what God's called you to do, right? It's another sermon for the day. But what happens is she's wiping his hair and she's doing that. And Jesus rebukes them and says, hey, what she's done is good, chaos, proper, beautiful. And it will not be taken from her. That word there, when Peter says to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, is a word that means to live beautifully. To have something that is good, that your faith is good. And so here's what we have to do. 
When we look at a 2,000-year-old letter, what do we take away from that? And here it is. If you have your notes handy, write this down. Here's today's big idea. Our faith must be visible and beautiful to those without faith. Our day's big idea is our faith must be visible and beautiful to those without faith. That's what Peter was trying to tell them. Let your faith be attractive. Let it be beautiful so when people see it, they want what you have. So last week, we talked about having a genuine faith, right? If you have a genuine faith, Peter said that, there must be an imposter faith, a faith that's not genuine. Well, if there's a visible faith and a beautiful faith, guess what there must be on the flip side? An invisible faith, a faith that's not beautiful. So I want to show you three things quickly that I've experienced that have been invisible faith and kind of what they're made of. The first aspect of invisible faith is this, is hidden. Duh. <laughs> invisible is hidden. But, but here's, here's the thing. I, I don't want you to be an obnoxious Christian where you go around and you've got like a big you know, cross on like Flavor Flav, you know. And you walk in like, yeah, Jesus in the house. Like, you know, don't, don't do that at work. You can actually, you know, do the opposite. But some people are actually secret agent Christians. You don't know they're believers, right? You have no clue. And then one day you show up at church at the same place. You're like, wait a minute. No, you don't follow Jesus, do you? Because really? I would have never known. That's what you don't want people to say about you. And so there are secret agent Christians who want to kind of be hid. And sometimes we've been fooled that our faith is private. Like in my dad's generation, you know, it's like you have, your, your faith is private. It's personal but never private. Matter of fact, Jesus tells you to let your light shine before men so that they see your good deeds and they do what? They glorify your Father in heaven because of your good, see the word, good deeds. So some people have a hidden faith, faith thing for some people, right? I'm a, little, I'm a pastor. It's really weird. I play basketball with guys and I don't walk in going, you know, Hi, Pastor Kevin here. Come to play some ball with you. You know, that, that's not what I do. I really, what I want to do is this. I want people to see my lifestyle, and then when they find out I'm a pastor, they go, because this happened a few weeks ago, and I was a little nervous, I'll be honest with you, because I tried this. What I'm teaching you, I'm trying. I don't have it down pat. Like, I'm, I'm still a work in progress. So the guys found out that I'm a pastor, and I forgot how they found out. But one guy come to me, he went, you're a pastor? And I was like, this guy does not like me. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I must have been really, you know, I must not have been, you know, nice playing basketball. He says, man, it makes sense now, man. Yeah. And I'm like, whew, like a whew, sigh of relief, you know. And so then I'm dropping little, you know, like we're guarding each other. I'll just be like, hey, man, you know, the, the reason that I'm, I just, I, I never argue about fouls, I believe you should do unto others as you want others doing to you. He's like, man, he's like, that's it there, man. I like that. I like that, man. I effing like that. And that's why he uses the language, you know? But that, that's, that's the whole goal. Sometimes our faith is so hidden, people don't get, don't get a chance to see Christ and understand and put the connection of what really makes us who we are. Uh, the second aspect of invisible faith is not only is it hidden, but religious. Sometimes we can actually miss Jesus because of religiosity. Because of religion. Here's what I mean by that. I grew up in a generation, in my generation, where it was all about religion. Like following Jesus was just following rules. And you were taught that you could be a good Christian if you just did a lot of good things. 
if you didn't do bad things and you did good things. The problem is I didn't know Christ. So I had family members who wanted me to, like, you know, stop doing behaviors before I ever met Jesus. Listen, non-believers are going to act like non-believers. Once they meet Christ and they truly come to know Christ, he changes them. But I could not see Jesus because of religion. Matter of fact, I had two sets of grandparents. Um, uh, one set died early on before I was age 11. The other ones lived well until I was in the mid, uh, you know, mid-30s. And so, anyway, like growing up, I had two experiences. Uh, one set of grandparents I got to watch Cheers with. Um, we, right, near the show? And we would play Scrabble and Grandma would buy me Transformers. I could watch cartoons. We'd even watch the stories in the afternoon. Anybody know what the stories are in the afternoon? I see it. We'd shell butter beans and watch the stories together, right? Yeah, the soap operas, as the world turns, those things. And my grandma was just, I love that woman. She was fun. And she went to a boring Methodist church that they always go, Amen, at the end. And um, I'll just wait to that one part to see if I could sing that. And that stained glass. And it was really, but I, I enjoyed going. I actually, you know, she was interesting. She was, she, I prayed with her. I learned about Jesus. I had another set of grandparents. Different story. I could not watch cartoons. I could not watch the Smurfs there. Because my grandfather said the gargamel, that he actually did magic. And he would not let any spells in his house because of magic. So I couldn't watch any cartoons because He-Man, Power of Grayskull, you know, all that. Like, like, I mean, everything was off limits there. Thundercats, there was nothing. G.I. Joe, you know, it was, you could, I mean, I couldn't even bring G.I. Joe's with those toys to his house. So what did I do there? We watched National Geographic. That's all we watched. At night, we would read Sunday school literature together. And it was, like, let's be honest with you, and what they did, they equated Christianity with what you did. And my dad wouldn't follow Christ. He wouldn't go to church. He said, I can't live up to those rules and standards. I can never be a Christian. And so maybe you experienced a religious experience that you didn't actually see Jesus. You saw a list of rules that what you did or didn't do actually made you a Christian. It wasn't who you followed. Uh, the third way, and this could kind of tie into the religious one, and third aspect of invisible faith is when it's repulsive. Have you ever just been around somebody who like, they made whatever they did repulsive. You just want to be around it. If they sold something, if they did something, it's just repulsive. Some people have repulsive faith. Matter of fact, my friend Adam, remember the guy I talked about who left his faith? He encountered repulsive Christians who would stand up front and lift their hands high, and they could shout louder than everybody else. When they got out of, out of church, they would cuss you out faster than anyone else. And it repulsed him. One of the greatest religious leaders of our time actually encountered this as well. His name was Mahatma Gandhi. And he went and stayed with some foster Christian parents when he was a teenager. And what he said was this. He said that he, he, he watched them. He would go to church. He said the teaching sounded really good about Jesus. Here's the problem. He said they didn't follow those teachings. He says, I could not buy into Christianity because of Christ's followers. And he decided to go a whole different route because of that. See, this is why this is so important today. We tell our dream team every time we gather at 8.15 on Sunday mornings before they serve, here's what we say. Before they ever meet Jesus, they're going to meet you. Before they ever come in and sit here, they're going to meet you before they meet Jesus. And they may choose or not choose Jesus because of you. 
And you say, well, Kevin, that's, I don't know, man, that's going a little too far. Well, here's why I say that. When I went to church when I was almost 20 years old, I'd not been to church in 10 years. Actually, I did go one time. I was late. I went and got the Bible when you graduated. Anybody ever did that? You go and you get the Bible. I showed up late, and I'm like, oh, man, I actually had to get it after service. I was dressed in my cap and gown. I looked really foolish. I've been partying the night before. And so that's the one time I went. So I went to church on a Monday night to youth service, and when I got there, these, these kids were nice. They embraced me. One of the guys was the first kid I ever played with in kindergarten. I watched these, these I sat in the back, and I, and I didn't follow Jesus. I just watched all this stuff, and I watched people raise their hands and worship God. And I got, and, and you know what? I received Christ that night. But way before that ever got there, I encountered people. I'm going to meet you and me. I don't ever want to be a stumbling block that puts something in front of Christ where they don't want to follow Christ because they, because, because they met me. And that's why our faith must be beautiful. That's why we must do that. And so here's the goal, and here's what we have to do. We must build a faith. Now watch this here. Write this. If you have to understand our next step, we must build a beautiful faith that others are attracted to even when they don't believe. We must build a beautiful faith that others are attracted to even when they don't believe. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Colossians. He wrote to this church in Colossae. He says this. He says, live wisely. Colossians 4 verse 5. Live wisely among those who are not believers. And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and, watch this, attractive. So that you will have the right response for everyone. Paul is encouraging those believers to like have this attractive lifestyle. That when people look at the way you live for Jesus, they admire that and they want what you have. If you're new here, you may not have heard the story of, of Eric. My best friend Eric gave his life to Christ. And that's what opened my eyes up to Christianity. Because we did everything together. Like We weren't junior varsity partiers. We were like varsity I had the Letterman jacket for partying, and we, I mean, busted, gone to you know, courts, in and out. I mean, we went through so much together. And when he gave his life to Christ, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know what had happened to him, but I knew that I wanted what he had even though I hated it. I hated Christianity. I thought it was stupid. I did. But I wanted what he had because I looked at him, and he was so happy. I mean, he didn't need to drink or do drugs or smoke cigarettes. He didn't that stuff anymore. He was, like, set free from it and didn't want it. And he would talk. He, he had this life about him. Before, he, was, he seemed like, you know, like dead behind the eyes like I was. And something had changed. And even though I didn't believe in Christianity, I wanted it to be true. Because I wanted deep down inside the same thing to be true about my life. I wanted the same thing to happen for me. And eventually, I ended up giving my life to Christ. Because he made that so attractive. I loved to drink. I loved to party. I, people wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun, right? Come on, y'all. Some of y'all are way too holy for church, man. And I thought, giving all that up, really? But when I looked at him, I said, that's beautiful. And I don't understand it all, but I wanted to find out what. You know the first person I called when I gave my life to Christ? On my mom's birthday, March 1st, 1999. I walked in, first of all, and she was crying. I was like, Mom, stop being so weird. Ugh, I gave my life to Jesus. It's all good. I did this whole, I prayed that prayer thing. I called my friend Eric because he was the one that made it beautiful to me. 
You probably have that story too, right? If you follow Jesus, somebody made the gospel attractive to you. At some point, something that seems so, why would I do that? Why would I stop these things? This is fun. You stopped them because you met Jesus. They met Jesus, and they said, look, you need to do this thing too because it's good. It's fun. It's kind of like what I, I thought about this week, equating to like healthy eating. So like I'm on, on like a mostly plant, plant-based diet, um, and I would literally like laugh at people. Like, you don't eat meat? What's wrong with you? You crazy. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll eat a steak for you. Now, granted, I will if I go with my wife out somewhere. I'll, I'll be, you know, free to eat with her, you know, so I don't make her feel weird. But I'll tell you what happened to me. I've had friends along the way that I used to be like, you would, I mean, here's what, I used to drink a Mountain Dew and drink a honey bun, or eat a honey bun for breakfast. That's what I used to do. I, again, if you didn't know me, 50 pounds heavier. And I thought, why would I ever want to do that? Why would I ever give up all that good food? Can I tell you something? I don't crave it. I used to have, why would I ever want to give up all that? Why? That's, see, that is, you're free to eat what you want to eat. That's what I want to be, right? I'm going somewhere with this. I'm free if I can do what I want to do because that's what makes me happy. I didn't understand true freedom was being able to say no to the things that could actually cut my life short. I didn't know that true freedom was being able to enjoy the very things that God's given us to, to eat. Now, I'm not trying to convince you to do this, but here's what I'm saying in my own life. That's the way I viewed faith, too. Why would anybody not go drink until you're thrown up into a toilet? That's fun. That's the way I thought. Why would anybody not go smoke 10 blunts in one night? That's fun. I'm free because I can do all these things. I didn't know that true freedom was this, being able to say no to that, to say yes to God's will for my life. That's true freedom. And when I looked at Christianity, what convinced me was someone whose whole life had changed, and I saw the benefits of it. The same thing happened health-wise. When I talked to people who gave up certain things and stopped eating certain things, and I interviewed them, and I researched, I said, man, there's something to that. They seem so much happier. Same way with our faith. And so what we must do, guys, we must be that way in our faith to other people because they're looking at you and they're looking at me to judge Jesus. So how do we do this? And there's three, three things we have to do to build a beautiful faith, uh, faith, three things. The first one you have to do is this. Be grace-focused. Be grace-focused. And here's what I mean by that. To be grace-focused means people need to hear about God's grace to your life and your testimony of what Jesus did for you. They don't just need to hear that you like church, which you should, right? You do want to like, try to invite them to church. They don't just need to hear where you like the music or you like this. They need to hear what Christ did for you. That's what changed me. There were churches on every corner. It was only until I had somebody tell me about what the grace of God had done for them through Jesus that I wanted what they had. People need to hear what God has done for you, sir. I remember riding with tell you something. my grandmother, who was the one, the fun one, she died of cancer. I remember riding with her to Duke University and my mom, and I was laying in the back seat, and she listened to tapes all the time. And one of the tapes she listened to was Dave Reaver. Has anybody ever heard of Dave Reaver before? Okay, for you, uh, other several hundred who haven't, you can listen to him this week, all right? Dave Reaver, he got blew up in a war, lost all these body parts, face blown off. He's laying in the infirmary, and his wife walks up. She takes off her ring and throws it at him and says, I didn't marry that. 
And he laid there, there sobbing and crying, asking God that he would just die. As a little boy, I remember listening to this, laying in the back. And I didn't believe in this Christianity stuff. I just kind of sometimes went to church. And he shared his testimony of how not only he lived through that, but God saved him, gave him a beautiful wife. They said never have children again. He had children, and he preaches the gospel. And he shared, I never forgot that testimony. The night that I got saved, I didn't get saved because church was cool. They had some, you know, back then it was like they had contemporary music and a couple cool lights. You know the reason I gave my life to Christ? There was a man on the video screen. They did a DVD that night. And we watched this guy named David Green who had cerebral palsy. And his whole thing was this. And I'm not making fun of him, but he said it this way. He said, he said I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? And he shared the testimony of how God had saved him and redeemed him. They said he'd never have children. And he showed all that God had done in his life. And I thought, I want that. I want, a, I want to serve a God like that. People need to hear the testimony of how God redeemed you and God rescued you and God saved you. Your children need to hear your story. Your friends need to hear your story. Here's the second way we build a beautiful faith. Be for those who are not for you. This is hard. Be for those who are not for you. We treat non-believers and unbelievers like they're enemies. Like we, we treat your, the people at work, right? Like that they're just, oh man, they drive you crazy and they're not following Jesus. The people you're around, they are our purpose. And be for those who are not for you. And if they're on a different side of the, of, of the political fence, whatever side you're on, be for them, love them. You don't have to agree with everything they do. You don't have to agree with their, their, their lines that, that they, they, they have in their parties or whatever they do. You can say, hey, I totally disagree with you 100%. You know what? I love you, man. Let's get some coffee. Let's get lunch. Let's break bread together. You can be for those who are not for you. See, Jesus did that. There was a woman who was actually, we believe, set up in the act of adultery. Like We believe that, that the, these religious leaders tried to trap her. Because they wanted to trap Jesus. And they found this woman caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus in John 8. And John records this. And what the religious leaders wanted, they wanted Jesus to stone her to death. Or order for that to happen. Because in the Jewish religious law, you get caught in adultery, they stoned you to death. And that doesn't mean that they made you smoke marijuana until you died. <laughs> that means they stoned you with real stones. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, that sounds fun. So I wanted to clarify that, Right? Just saying. So they bring this woman there. John, who wrote this, was there. And Jesus begins to write in the dirt. And we don't know what he wrote. And stop trying to figure out what he wrote. You know, that's conjecture. We don't know what he wrote. John, maybe John didn't know. Maybe John was so far away he couldn't really tell. And maybe, but here's what he, I, do, I do know. Jesus said, all of the, if you don't have sin, go ahead and cast the first stone and condemn her. And those guys all walked away, right? Oldest to youngest, as they said, they all walked away. Now, he was left alone with that woman. He didn't say, you do you, boo. You keep sleeping around and having a daughter. I, I ain't here to judge you. I'm Jesus, man. Come on. I just love you the way you are. You, do, you live any way you want to live. Is that what Jesus said to her? No. He said this to her. He said, neither do I condemn you. But then he said this. So he embraced her with his words. And then he said, go sin no more. He said, I don't condemn you. But you got to stop it. <laughs> Essentially, stop it. 
See, you can be the same thing for others. You can embrace them and love them even though you don't agree with their lifestyle. And you can actually be their friend. Be for those who are not for you. My friend Eric was for me. I was trying to get him to drink and do drugs, y'all, and smoke cigarettes after he gave his life to Christ. Hey, man, take one. Come on. Come party. He should have have left me in the dust, shouldn't he? But he was for me. Even though he didn't agree with my lifestyle, he still showed me a beautiful faith. And here's the final thing we have to do. We've got to be okay with being different. Be okay with being different. See, Peter tells them that they're chosen by God. They're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. I'm going to tell you something. If you're under the age of 25, every young person in here, you've got to be okay being different. You said, why did I say 25? You're 30. You thought you were young. Do you know that when I grew up at 25, you couldn't be on the real world anymore on MTV? It said 18 to 25. You guys remember real world, MTV? And I realized when I hit 25, I really had a crisis of life because I realized I was old according to MTV. (laughs) But I do say that for, and I'm teasing on purpose, if you're under the age of 25 in here, this is really, really, really for you. You got to be okay being different. You got to be okay with standing up and saying, yeah, I don't have sex before marriage because I don't want all these habits and hang-ups and these emotional attachments to other people. And this, and I want to save myself for the one God has for me. And they're going to say, you're weird and you're gross. They're going to, people are going to pressure you to embrace what the culture says is right. And if you don't do it, something's wrong with you. You've got to be okay with being rejected. When I gave my life to Christ, I'm going to tell you something. I lost every friend that I had. They called me names. They made fun of me. I lost every, I'm being honest, the only friend I had was Eric, who followed Jesus. If you're going to follow Christ, you've got to be okay with being different. You've got to be okay with God breathed. And yes, I want to follow it. Yes, I love Jesus. I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. I know it sounds weird, but he's changed my life. And you've got to be okay with being different. You've got to be okay with being rejected. Because people are looking for something in this world, guys. And it wasn't until I found somebody who was different that I, that I was attracted to it. When my friend Eric showed up and wouldn't do those things anymore, it made it attractive to me. I said, dude, what, what happened to you? And I knew it wasn't church. Friends, as we leave here this week, realize the places and spaces you live, you work, you play, you go to school. You, you're God wants your faith to be beautiful, to be visible, to be attractive to others. So they'll be attracted to Jesus. Before they ever experience Jesus, they're going to experience you and me. And the reason I go out and do the things that I do in the world, like, like you know, coaching my son's uh, basketball team, little three- and four-year-old basketball team, or I'm out doing, you know, Y-League basketball, or I'm out in my community going to parties at my friend hosts. Why would I do all that? Because I want to be out among people who don't know Jesus. And my prayer is every time in those environments, God, please help me to have an attitude to reflect Christ to the point that they want to find out what's so different about you. And I want what you have. I met Derek this week. You don't know Derek, and Derek doesn't come to this church. He delivered from some groceries. As he came in, he was really happy and really nice. So happy and so nice, I thought, this guy's going to kill me. He's scooping me out. Nobody can be this happy. I got talking to Derek. And Derek needed me to sign, and we couldn't get him to sign inside at, you know, some of the house. He couldn't. He said, well, I said, let's step outside, and I'll, I'll sign for you. And he began to ask me questions about my life. He says, man, I work three jobs. 
I'm trying to support my family. I'm try- he, said, I, I wanna, he said, I want to leave something for, for, for my sons. I want to leave something for my, for my boys. He says, man, how did you get to the place you're at in life? He asked me what I did. So I'm a pastor. I'm being good. He said, oh, man, so, so, so church really did it for you. I, I shared my testimony with Derek of what Jesus Christ did for me. I said, Derek, I would be dead right now if it was not for Jesus, and I don't deserve anything that I have. I shouldn't have this house. House. I shouldn't have this wife. As the talking heads, uh, talking heads said, where did I get this house? Where did I get this beautiful wife, right? You know the song? You know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I just went over your head. And Derek, and Derek looked at me and said, man, he said, I want what you have. I said, Derek, is Jesus. He said, can I get your number and talk to you more about this? He said, I'm tired. And from his words, I'm tired of listening to everybody in the hood about what I'm supposed to do. He said, I believe there's more for me. And I think God had me here tonight for me to hear this. He doesn't follow Jesus. Every opportunity you get, use it to leverage the gospel to show Jesus to someone. Let's pray. Father.